Today I want to talk to you, and the title of the message is, Why is there suffering? Why is there suffering? We're going to go to Mark chapter 15, verse 15 through 20. Stand with me for the reading of the word. Come to these passages. They're passages of scripture that really need to be read upon the knees of our hearts. So the word of God. So Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come, Lord God, to a passage, and we come, Lord God, in humility, Lord God, we come with great reverence to see the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creation of all, and what he would endure, Lord God, for us to bring salvation and forgiveness, Lord God, to each and every one of us who believe upon his name, upon his work. So, Father God, I pray, Lord God, that you would put it in our hearts, Lord God, to come to this passage today with an open heart, Lord God, come upon the knees of our heart, and that you, Jesus, would minister your word to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So what we, what we have here, you see, again, the, the suffering of the Lord. And in this passage, a number of things that were done, again, to the king of kings. He is scourged. And uh, what the scourging involved, that instrument was called a flagrum. And the flagrum was a, uh, a, a stick, a staff, and attached to it were leather straps. And at the end of the leather straps, you had sharpened pieces of lead. And as they whipped Jesus, the whipping would remove essentially his flesh from the top of his neck down to the back of his ankles. And with each swing of the flagrum, it would wrap around, not only take the flesh off his back, but wrap around and affect his chest, his, his torso, the front of his torso, his, his front of his thighs, the front of his calves. And um, a lot of the, the times, the history tells us that when a person was receiving uh, these lashes, uh, they would be tied to a stake, and it was so brutal that it frequently would remove the flesh, the skin, completely from the surface, even ripping the muscles. And they say that you could actually see on some of these people who experienced the exposure of internal organs, the kidneys, the liver, the lungs. A lot of times after the, uh, this, this scourging, the person would actually die. And I believe when, when Mel Gibson did the... Passion of the Christ, he did a good depiction of how brutal and how horrible this actually was. Now, they, uh, they also put a, it says in the scriptures, Matthew calls it a scarlet robe and Mark calls it a purple robe. And uh, the, the critics of scripture say, see, they were confused. I'll just say this purple robe, red robe, by the way, John and um, and Luke also mentioned a, a purple robe. But it, it, it just suggests that the robe had, you know, in the sunlight, you know, you ever see purple, you see red. It's different shades. And I think with all the blood that was flowing from Jesus, if it was a purple robe, it became a scarlet robe. And then they placed a crown of thorns upon his head. And again, we, we get a little stuck in a thorn bush here in America. The thorns in Israel, and I, I brought this back from Israel, and if you ever want to come up and see, uh, the thorns are two inches long, and uh, when they were fresh, incredibly sharp, um, 
I think sometimes, in fact, we always warn the kids when they're singing here, don't walk into the... Some of the kids have actually gotten a little stuck as they've, um, as they've backed up into it. They pressed it. They pressed it down upon his head. And then it tells us that they beat his face with rods and uh, beat him, you know, just brutally. And then they mocked him. Mock worship. They spit on him. Uh, they acted like they were worshiping him. He was so brutally beaten that in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, and you read the Gospels and you read about the crucifixion of Jesus and the brutality of Jesus, you go to Isaiah 52, 53, sometimes the, the prophecies are actually more graphic than the actual explanations of the apostles. And here it says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He was so marred that he began to not look human, so torn to shreds, bruised and bloodied and scarred and torn, cut and bleeding. And then the passage says, then he was led away to Calvary and he carried his cross to the place where he would then he would then die he suffered he suffered he suffered for us he took our suffering upon himself so that essentially the suffering that he experienced then it was ultimately a separation from the father on the cross when darkness came in the 12th hour 12 o'clock noon and he cried out my god my god why hast thou forsaken me ile ile lama sabachthani that there was a separation in his humanity from the very divinity of God, and he suffered our hell upon the cross. And that is, again, that is a hell that we would never have to suffer if we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But yet there, there, there is still suffering that we suffer here as human beings and as Christians, right? So in, in Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Again, speaking of the children of God, these are Christians. They have been redeemed. They have been saved. They have been justified by the blood of the land. And he says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So, there is no suffering in the next life. There is no sickness. There is no death. There is no pain. But in this life, we experience suffering. In Romans 14.22, it says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue with faith and saying, uh, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. By the way, that's Acts 14.22. I was, I've been fixated on Romans in my personal devotions. <laughs> That we would go through many tribulations, many, many trials. And the passages, again, the Bible is very honest with this. You know, sometimes you, <laughs> a cultist, a false teacher, will say, come to Jesus and everything will be fine. There will be no suffering, there will be no pain. Your teeth will never need to be cleaned by the dentist, right? You will never have body odor. You will be rich you will be successful and you will never get sick. And um, that's not exactly what the scriptures teach. In 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We still have victory in this, in this tribulation. We have victory in the trials. In Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The word burden there is the word weight. That not only do we have our own personal suffering that we deal with, but we suffer with others. Now Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, I carry you in my heart, I carry you in my mind, I carry you in my prayers, and he says, I carry you in my bowels. <laughs> you know, think of this, because they tell us that there are more neurotransmitters in our lower abdomen than there are in our brains. And where do you hurt? When somebody that you love is hurting, when you're hurting yourself, right? We hurt here. And again, we, we suffer with others. Yesterday, 
afternoon, a friend of mine called me up. He doesn't live here. He's not from the church. Good friend. He's a, a rancher out in, um, out in Oklahoma, a very successful businessman. And he called me up and he said to me, I need to share something with you. And he, and he said to me, and this is a man, I've, I've come to love him. He's a real, real man, a cowboy. <laughs> it's like, the, like John Wayne. And he said to me, I, I was diagnosed with an aorta abnormality. I have a, um, a, a very large cyst on my aorta and it's threatening my life. And uh, he's strong faith, and he said, you know, I believe if I die, I will go to be with the Lord. He goes, I have total confidence of that. We frequently talk about the Lord. But he's got a wife and two small children. And so that burden comes upon your heart. You carry the burden of other people, you know, with you when they come to you and they, they share with you their trials. And so we don't just carry our own burdens, and you know this, this is true. You carry the burdens of others, and uh, you carry that pain. In your heart. Second Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, it says, This light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here we are again. We suffer, we experience pain, we experience tribulation. But essentially, one day, we will be delivered from them all. But while we're here now, we experience pain and suffering. There have been, been a number of books that I've read that try to explain to us why we suffer. I think many times we don't quite understand why we suffer. Sometimes, I think as Christians, we think we shouldn't be suffering. Sometimes people lose faith in God. Sometimes people blame God for their personal suffering, and um, these are some books they shed some light on it. The Problem of Pain is a great one by C.S. Lewis. Harold Kushner was a rabbi. He wrote, when bad things happen to good people, we sometimes wonder, why has this happened to me? I've been living right and good. And then Philip Yancey, where is God when it hurts? And sometimes people wonder that. Where is God? David did in Psalm 13. Where are you, O Lord? Have you deserted me in my pain? And uh, making sense of, of suffering, that's Joni Erickson, who was a very successful diver who dove off and basically crashed at the bottom of the pool and was now paralyzed from the neck down. Joni wrote a book again, trying to make sense of the suffering that we experience. So why do we suffer? Why is there, why is there suffering that occurs in our life? And I want to propose, I want to propose five things to you. This, these will help you. As I really came to understand the Bible, you know, I think you'll, you'll find a, a piece to the puzzle in philosophy or a piece to the puzzle in psychology, a piece to the puzzle in sociology. But the Bible gives us the entire puzzle. So there, there have been some, some great books and some great poems and some great songs and some great essays that have been written as to why we suffer. But the Bible gives us five reasons, five reasons why we suffer. As, as human beings. And the, first, the first is Satan. By the way, Satan is, is, is there at the scourging of Jesus. In fact, I, I believe it is his last attempt to kill Jesus. Because Satan did not kill Jesus on the cross. Who killed Jesus on the cross? I know we in our, in our deep holiness and righteousness, we will say, I crucified Jesus. But the Father crucified Jesus Jesus crucified Jesus, the Spirit crucified Jesus, God crucified Jesus on the cross. He said, I lay down my life of my own accord, nobody takes it from me. But Satan was trying to kill Jesus the entire, right, is his birth, right? Herod trying to, to kill the children, the boys, right, of Bethlehem. He wanted to kill Jesus. He did not want Jesus to go to the cross. He understood what would happen if Jesus went to the cross, died on the cross, won the victory, and then was raised from the dead. So Satan is right there with his minions, the Roman soldiers, trying to kill Jesus. The beating was, again, so severe that it, it, it could have killed a weaker man. So Satan, he causes pain. In 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Right? He's always on the prowl. 
If you see a roaring lion going after the gazelle, who does the lion go after? The weakest, right? Goes after the, the smallest. The one that's wandered away, the wildebeest that's wandered away, the, the gazelle that's wandered away from the flock and suddenly they become prey and Satan is always looking. He's always looking for that, that weak person who has wandered away from Jesus who he can, he can attack. John 10.10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. He said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus comes to give life. Satan comes to bring death, to bring destruction. He steals away the precious things that God has given us. When, when you're experiencing at times, you may see people who will say, I blame God for this. Be careful that it's not God who has come and stolen from you or maybe hurt you or hurt somebody you love. Be careful because that's the work of the devil. Now, in light of that, we are not to fear him. We are to fear God. To fear God is, is, is reverence. It is to live with a sense of awe and deep respect. Reverence is worship. We, we focus on that which we fear. Do you realize that? When you begin to fear Satan, you begin to focus on him. A number of years ago, there was a book written, This Present Darkness, and it, it went through the church like a wildfire. I don't know how many of you remember that. And it was about Satan and his attacks against the church, and everybody in the church suddenly was focused on Satan. It was like every time we picked up our Bible, we thought Satan might be under it. So now our focus was on Satan, right? We are reverencing Satan and not reverencing God. He gets our attention. Now, the, the, the Word of God tells us that, that Satan, and let me read to you from Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Finding my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's the schemes. He's got schemes, strategies against us. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. And it says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Satan has an army, has a hierarchy, much like an army of generals and colonels and majors and captains, lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, and foot soldiers. So he has a, he has a, a well-organized army of, of the fallen angels, He also, he also has not only an army in heavenly places. See the word, the last three words there, I put them in the red, heavenly places. He's also got his followers and his soldiers in earthly places. So John 8.44, just one of numerous verses that you can find in the scriptures. You are of your father the devil. He's talking to the religious leaders. Your father is the devil. And the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So he, he has human beings who he basically has control of. Politicians in Washington and other places. Demonized, possessed under his power in the educational institutions, in the church. He has his people. He's a murderer and he's a liar. Look, look at again our world. See those who are murderers, who advocate the murder of the unborn. And now... Not only the murder of the unborn, but the murder of the born, infanticide. You look at, at, at the struggle with the cities of America, DAs, where you can go out and you can, you can murder, you could rape, you can steal, and you will be freed in a day or two. 
But if you stand against to protect yourself, you could be put in jail for a lifetime. Read Proverbs about the unjust leaders who free the guilty and punish the innocent. So he has, he has his people. What happens is, I think I hear this in the church a lot, and we have to be careful of this. So now we began to fear Satan's minions. Right? We began to fear the very minions of Satan, not just the, uh, Satan and the fallen angels, but now we begin to fear those he has in power in the political realm, in the educational realm, in other realms. And that fear message goes out. It's very strong. Right, right now, the message goes out. You need to, you need to buy guns. I'm not against the Second Amendment. I'm for the Second Amendment. But you need to buy guns because they're coming for you. You need to buy gold because they're coming for your money. I get some newsletters of people who have been telling me since 2000. And I'm not against. I believe in a diverse portfolio to have some gold or silver or platinum is a good thing. But I've been listening to these people for years and it's like, buy gold, buy gold because they're coming and gold is going to be worth so much money. But in 12 years, gold didn't increase by more than 6% totally. And if you were in the market, you would have tripled your worth. But it's fear. And the media plays on fear. Not only does CNN and MSNBC play on fear, so does Fox play on fear. You watch Fox and you will leave there afraid because they're coming for you. you know, I study the martial arts vigorously every day, an hour or two. You know what the odds of me dying from somebody attacking me are? You know what we're going to die from, really, for the most part? We're not going to die from the boogeyman coming up through the front door to attack us. We're going to die from cancer or arteriosclerosis or heart disease, some other lifestyle disease. And so we, we study, and again, that's not the main reason why I study the martial arts, to be protected when it comes in. I think the martial arts will probably do more for my longevity and just the benefits that I get to it from it physically than um, ever having to use it to defend myself. If most of us, if most of us came into that place of reality, uh, I think we would probably eat better, exercise more, if we drink, we'd probably stop drinking. If we smoke, we'd probably stop smoking. We'd change our lifestyle. That's ultimately the thing that's, that's killing people. You know, even think about this. Auto accidents are killing far more people than violence. And so heart disease and cancer and everything else. But again, what, what have we been made to? To fear. Fear, right? Fear the devil. Fear the, the evil minions that are out there because they're coming for you. They're coming for your life. So we live in fear. Our focus is on Satan. He becomes the worship of our life. Instead of fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our life. Think about that. So what do we do? What do we do with, with, with Satan? We focus on the Lord. Now, the Word of God tells us in Ephesians 4.27, and do not give the devil a foothold. Right? Don't give him a foothold. And that is a good picture of the foothold, a bear trap or a raccoon trap. Once you step into it, forget it. It goes. The poor bear, the poor, I mean, they should be outlawed. The poor bear, the poor raccoon has to bite its leg off to be free. You know, once Satan gets us in that foothold, it's really hard to get out, right? Drugs, alcohol, pornography, jealousy, anger, rage, fear, prejudice, bigotry. Once we get caught in that trap. You know, if you've ever gone fishing and got a fishing hook into your finger, it goes in so easy. It's so hard to get out. It has those little burrs on it. You know, sometimes you have to take the knife and cut the skin to be able to get it out. But that's what Satan does. 
he gets us, he gets us. So we, we have to be careful not to step into his traps. He puts those traps around us all the time. And then to put on the armor of God. Right, the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the feet of peace. You've got to go and, and get that, that helmet on. Get that breastplate on, that belt on. Get, pick up the sword. What is the armor of God? Who is the armor of God? The armor of God is Jesus. Who's your salvation? Yeah, who's your righteousness? Who's your truth? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one may come to the Father except to me. Who is the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. Who is our faith? Galatians 6.1, Jesus is our faith. Who is our peace? The Lord is our peace. Jesus is the armor of God. So when you're living in, in relationship with him, when you're living close to him, you're, you're living in intimacy with him. He is covering you with his armor. By the way, when the devil comes knocking on your door, if you answer it, you're in trouble. Let Satan answer. I mean, let Jesus answer Satan at the door. The armor of God. So we are not we are not to fear him. But if we allow him to trap us, he will cause tremendous pain and suffering in our lives. Number two, sowing and reaping. If you've ever had a garden or a little bowl of dirt that you put seeds in. Sowing is planting seeds. If you plant tomatoes, what do you get? Yes, you get tomatoes. If you plant pepper seeds, what do you get? You get peppers. If you plant cucumber seeds, what do you get? You get cucumbers. Right, that's, that's very positive. If you, if you plant weed seeds, what do you get? You get weed. Not that kind of weed. If you plant belladonna seeds, what do you get? You know what belladonna is? It's poison. But what you essentially plant is what you essentially reap. Sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So scripture is filled with people who, they really, they sowed bad seed. Judas sowed bad seed. The ten brothers of, of, of Joseph, they sowed some bad seed. Ahab, Jezebel sowed bad seed. Ananias and Sapphira sowed bad seed. And they reaped. They reaped a harvest of pain and suffering. While there are those in the scriptures you see who sowed good seed. Joseph sowed good seed. Caleb, Joshua, we've been looking at them on Wednesday. They were good seed sowers. The King Josiah, Elijah, Elisha, Deborah, Mary, Mary Magdalene. They sowed good seed and they reaped salvation. They reaped joy. They reaped peace. So what we sow, we will reap. The scriptures tell us in Luke chapter 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So not only it's a matter of what we sow, but how much we sow. In 2 Corinthians 9.6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I know most preachers love those passages because they talk about money, but I'm saying I believe they talk about much more than money. It's, ta it's talking about your life. Those who go through life and sow good into the lives of others, they sow love, they sow encouragement, compassion, kindness, giving, it always comes back. And those who go through life and sow pain into others' lives, discord and gossip and slander, they backbite, they hurt, they hate, 
they sow fear into other people's lives. What you, what you have, again, I call it the boomerang effect. When I was a kid, we were throwing a boomerang, and one of the guys who was a bit of a bully, he threw the boomerang, and wonderfully, when that boomerang came back, I mean, I remember the day, it was like, <laughs> and it hit him right in the back of the head and knocked him down. I wasn't a Christian then, but glory to God. <laughs> but what you sow, you will reap. See, a lot of people through the years in counseling, they come and they've got problems. They've got money problems. They've got marriage problems. They've got people problems. They've got all these problems. And then we'll stop and we'll look at what they have been sowing and they are the cause of most of the problems that are in their life. So we are sometimes the cause of our greatest suffering and pain. Number three, God's discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, 4 to 11, let me read this to you. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are an illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more rapidly be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness... Now no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but is painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness, peaceable fruit of righteousness, to those who have been trained by it. When we step off the straight and narrow path as believers, and I find this, that God will, will speak to us through his still small voice. He'll warn us, you're, you're, you're off the straight and narrow. You're, you're heading for the thicket, for the thorns. He'll speak to us, still small voice. And if we, if we are in tune with him, we hear his voice, we get back on the straight and narrow. If we, if we ignore his voice, then will come the megaphone. And God's megaphone is disciplining through pain and suffering. And what I find with God is he will hit us where it most hurts. Every one of us is different. He, he may hit you in your pocketbook. He may hit you in your home. He may hit you in your career. But he, he, will, he will hit us to discipline us. Jacob is a great example of somebody whom God disciplined. And Jacob is a, he's a covenant man. He's a covenant child. But he's called the heel catcher. He's, he's a deceiver. He, he wrestles. He's constantly wrestling with people. Right? Always trying to get his way. It has to be his way. And he's always, he's always wrestling. He wrestles with Esau. He wrestles with Uncle Laban. He wrestles with Rachel, his wife, and Leah. Uh, he wrestles with his father, Isaac. And then he wrestles with God. Because he's been wrestling with God all along and resisting God. He's, he's rebelling against God. So he's, he's a picture of a, a life that is a man who was reaping what he sowed, but he is dis, disciplined by God. And when he has this wrestling match in the book of Exodus with God, God dislocated Jacob's hip. He's wrestling with God. And God touched his hip and dislocated it. God will make us to, he, he will break us to make us. You may not like the breaking, but he, he will break us to make us. He will drill us to thrill us. So he changes his name at that point to uh, essentially Jacob, Israel is, is God contended one who wrestles with God, 
And um, essentially, it could be translated, he triumphed over God, but actually it was really God who triumphed over him. But he had to do it in, in a very harsh way. And that is something that God will do with us. Some people are just, they're, they're ever grappling with God, resisting God, rebelling against God. And, you know, a lot of times I think that we, we, we have this illusion that, hey, we can get away. I can get away with it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm able to get away with it right now and get away with it. And then suddenly, boom, right? And then it hits. But he will discipline us out of love. It's never easy to discipline your children. It was always painful to me. Always Frankie, Chrissy, Rachel. It was always deeply painful to me as a godly father to discipline my children. I believe it hurt me far more than them. But I knew it was necessary because if it was not done, they would just continue to go off and destroy themselves. Number four, God's testing. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there, there are times when God will allow us to go through a trial. It's not because of, of anything we have done, it's not that he's disciplining us. It's, it's, it's not that he's reap, we're reaping what we've sowed. He just simply lets us go through a time of trial and a time of testing. Why? Because he needs to know about us, right? No, he knows everything about us. Before he puts you through a test, he knows exactly what you're going to do. He's not up there putting me through a test saying to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, look, we didn't know he would do that. Or Spirit, look, he didn't know, we didn't know he would do it. No, they know exactly, the Father, Son, and Spirit know exactly what I am going to do. The problem is, I don't. So when God is putting us through a testing Essentially, he's bringing us to a place where we can know ourselves. Socrates, great words, know thyself. Because testing, you see, testing, sometimes I discover that I'm stronger than I thought I was. That my faith is stronger than I thought it was. Maybe that I am more loving than I thought I was. And then there's other times where it reveals my weaknesses and I discover that I am far weaker than I thought I was. I am far lesser than I thought I was. I am far less obedient than I thought I was. And he brings us to that place. So now I'm aware of what I have to work on. I'm aware of my weaknesses. In Romans 12.3, For I say, though the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I think this is true of most people. They think they are far better than they actually are. We see this in the dojo all the time. It's actually quite comical. People come in and they do their fancy dance. And then suddenly they're on the ground, half unconscious. He says, but to think soberly. As God has dealt, has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Think soberly. You know, when, when somebody gets drunk, when I was a bouncer, the, the drunk guy, he got beer muscles, right? He gets, he gets beer muscles and um, he, basically you have, you have Billy Bear the belly king, right? He's got the, the, the big, um, I mean, he doesn't have a beer belly. He's got a keg. He's been sitting at the bar. He's had far too many drinks. And now he is going to pick a fight with the bouncers, most of whom are 240 or 50 pounds with tiny waists trained in martial arts and all sorts of other things. And he shouldn't be challenging them to a fight. I mean, if there was a fighting contest, maybe he would have a chance. But he's got, he's got beer muscles. 
and he's not sober. And so the word of God here says we are to, to think soberly, to have a, a, a right estimation of who we are, what we are, of our strengths and our weaknesses. And that's what testing does. Anybody who trains in the gym, you know this. You test yourself, right? You test your bench press. You test your squat. You test your deadlift. You see, test how many push-ups you can do. You test how many pull-ups you can do. If you're a runner, you test yourself, right? You, you go and Raphael went into a marathon. You were, you were tested. Sue and I, we, we were doing triathlons years ago. That's the test. We train. We train for weeks at a time, and then we go out. And we test ourselves. But suddenly now you, you have a good estimation of how strong you are, maybe how weak you are. Well, God will put us through tests. Life is a test. And he will put us through tests. And sometimes they're very uncomfortable. Sometimes they're painful. Sometimes they bring suffering. But he's putting us through a test to grow us. To grow us into the image of Yeshua. Last point. We experience pain and suffering because we live in a fallen world. This is not what God intended. So you, you read many passages, Genesis 3, 16 through 19. I'll read. It says, after they had sinned, he said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. How bad is it, ladies? Is it really that bad? I'll get emails for that. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. By the way, that right there, I taught on this about a year ago, that is the reason for marital conflict between husband and wives. Right there. That doesn't mean that it can't be overcome. But husbands and wives, they will seek to rule over each other. Then to Adam he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, there you go, husbands, take that to heart. I'm joking. Actually, Sue gives great advice. And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. That is the fall. That's where we live now. See, that was not God's perfect will. You understand, the Garden of Eden was God's perfect will. There was no death in the Garden of Eden. There was no sickness. There was perfect harmony between the man and his wife. They weren't ruling over each other. They were, they were co-leaders in the garden. There were no disasters. There was just health. There was joy. There was harmony between the man and his wife, the wife and the man, and with God, and even the animals. That was God's perfect will. Sin entered the world. Now we're in what is called God's permissive will. God permitted what is happening in the world, he has permitted to happen. Why? What if God just said to Adam and Eve, okay, you sinned, go on. Just go on leading your life. Go on sinning. And they would just continue to go on and sin with impunity. There had to be repercussions and consequences for their sin and for our sins. So look at, look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, 18 through 22. This, this passage here explains it. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's where we are. We are being subjected to futility. Do you know what, what, what futility means? It means useless. It's pointless. The person without God... They look at this life. I mean, just live for today because there's no hope of an afterlife, right? You listen to some people. As people get older, sometimes unbelievers, and I've heard unbelievers say, this really stinks getting old because they have nothing to look forward to. It's just, it's the end. Death. 
So God subjected it to futility, not willingly, right? But because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage and corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with pain, pangs together until now. So, you know, here we are in this fallen world. We, we are deteriorating Diane says, we are all terminal, right, Diane? No matter how hard we try, all that makeup, ladies, and that cream that you put on your face, the wrinkles still keep coming. I'm not that bodybuilder of 23 years old who weighed 240 pounds and had 8% body fat. I work out hard, I train, but you know what? It's, it is all going south, right? Where there were once right, beautiful roaming waves, there are now just sandy beaches. We are in this state. This is, this is where we are. Let me just, I'm gonna give you something, something positive here because even in this state, in this fallen world, you can live a life of peace and joy and hope through Jesus, and you can blossom. You can blossom. Even, even, let me say this to you, I was talking, my daughter Rachel, really, you know, meditating on the death of Jesus. She was talking to me about some women that she's ministering to and hope moms who have um, had miscarriages. And, um, you know, losing a child. You look at a mom with that with that baby, right? That baby, and I see them rubbing their stomachs, and they're they're connecting with the baby. I mean, I used to talk. I used to talk. We we had one miscarriage, but to the children, I would talk to them. They jump around in there. You'll get attached to them. Even even we've had a couple of funerals that I've done for little children who have died, and there has been nothing harder than that. A little casket here at the altar. And um, even in the midst of, of that pain, that's living in a fallen world, that child never did anything. They didn't, they, didn't reap, they didn't reap what they sowed. They weren't being disciplined by God. But they live in a fallen world. We don't understand. There's, there's again, these things, these things that are happening. The chemistry of the bodies. But even, even in the midst of that, and I want to give this up, because we have, Sue and I have a little girl who we believe is with Jesus. And Rachel has a couple of little children that are with Jesus, some of you here. And I believe, and that's, again, hope in the midst of this fallen world. I mean, this is a, a great hope that we have that, you know, that they are with, and the scripture gives us strong evidence for that, that a baby in the womb, right, is, is a human being. The baby in the room has been created in the image and likeness of God. They have been given a soul. And they are in a state of innocency. So I believe all who are in a state of innocency, all children, the mentally ill, if they should die, they go to be with the Lord. And there those children are, and that's, and that's a blessed hope, Right? That's a, that's a blessed hope. We will see them again. In the short life that we have, we will soon see them and be with them forever. And that is a blessed hope. So we are in the permissive will of God. Now let me give you just the final thing about God's will. You have the ultimate will of God. And that is a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, <laughs> a new body like Jesus, a perfect soul, a perfect spirit, you can read all about it. Read all about it. In Revelation 21, 22, here's one verse on it. For God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You're not going to remember the pains of the past. There shall be no more death. No sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And this will all be an afterthought, if not completely forgotten, as we will spend eternity in this place of incredible bliss and incredible joy.
So here's, here's my wrap-up, my key application. We have a hope Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. He's on borrowed time when Jesus was on the cross and he said it is finished. Satan is on borrowed time. I think what you see happening in our world right now, he knows his time is short. But again, he's active. He has an army. Don't give him a foothold. Don't fall for his schemes. And keep yourself in the armor of God, in Jesus. And I believe with that, you will experience far less pain and suffering. Focus on sowing good. So good, so righteousness, so wisdom, so love, because that in itself will keep you from much pain and suffering. Stay on the straight and narrow path. Obey God. That will keep you from much suffering and pain. When you are obeying God, he's not going to have to discipline you. And even if you should step off slightly, you know what, just listen, because that still small voice will correct you to get right back on the straight and narrow, because if you veer off, you're going to get afflicted. And he will use his megaphone. You will be tested. Sorry, that's, that's one you're, you're, you're really, for the, not, for the you're not going to avoid. He's going to test you. God tests me frequently. But look at the testing. See where you are. Notice your strengths. Notice your weaknesses. Rejoice in doing the things that are going to make you progress and growing in the grace of God, becoming less that Jesus may become more so that you can be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, the image of God's Son. And then last, we live in this fallen world. And just sometimes bad things can happen, even to the most obedient people. And again, we're living in the permissive will of God. I think that in those times you must trust in God. Know that he loves you. Hope in a new world that's coming. And um, we have been given the power and authority and the Spirit of God, that we can turn even the driest, most dead desert into a field of flowers. You have that. Amen? Amen. In the midst of a falling world, in the midst of pain and suffering, He loves you. He loves you and nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that has been given to us through Jesus Christ. If he would do that, that is proof of his love for you. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray, Lord God, this morning, you would just, Lord, in part, in print, your word upon our hearts. Life can be hard. It can be tough. It can bring, Lord, pain and suffering. May we, Lord God, remember remember these five great truths that you've given us in the word. And, and know, Lord God, and understand that maybe why we are suffering. But let us always look to you, Lord God, at the one who suffered for us on the cross to ultimately deliver us from all suffering, our Lord Jesus Christ. May he be the king of your lives. May be he the Lord of your bodies. May he be the savior of your souls. Amen. You can stand with me. Oh, communion. Oh, sit down. <laughs> See, we get caught up in the spirit of God. Many times I don't even know I'm up here. It's transcendental, it is. Preaching the word. I've come up here at times with a virus, sick, and just can preach without any feeling of illness. So you just kind of forget where you are. Take of your cup, take of the bread. If you want to stand, you can. The Lord's Supper, let us remember the night that Jesus was betrayed in the garden, 
for he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. He said to them, take this all of you and eat this for this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord's body that was pierced for us on the cross of Calvary, that was scourged, Lord, for us. Let us all partake. And then the Lord took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said to them, take this all of you and drink this for this is my blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Do this in remembrance of me and Lord, it is your blood, your death that you basically experienced for us that covers our sins and makes us, Lord God, acceptable to you and you see us the way you see your son in total righteousness. What a wonderful gift. Truly amazing. Let us all partake. If you'd like to come forward, just to draw closer to the Lord at the altars, they're open.
Hey, we call this Holy Week. Make it a Holy Week. Draw closer to God. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time in His Word than you would normally do. And Good Friday, again, special night. It's the night He died for you. I know most people will come out for Easter Sunday, but that's the day He died for you. Seven o'clock service. Come and worship Him. Come and let your heart be rendered. Let it be broken for what He did for you. And He will fill you. He will fill you as your heart opens with a greater blessing of his love and his grace. God bless you all this week. Go home, be safe. Have a good Lord's Day today in his presence. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you.